Well, we have been discussing over the last uh, 51 messages now. This is the 51st message. Focusing on the Christ, we considered the shadow of Christ, and then we considered the life of Christ. The end of last year, we were looking at the return of Christ, and then transitioning into this year, looking at the reign of Christ. And as we considered the reign of Christ, we considered the spiritual reign of Christ and how Christ reigns in our heart. And that has led us into this current sub-series, and that is the reflection of Christ. And we saw in the beginning is when Christ is residing and reigning in our hearts, it'll be reflected in our our lives. And so, as the picture shows that though the world is is looking and seeing us, really we should be mere reflections of Christ. And so that what we point them toward in the reality is Jesus Christ. And so if Christ is then residing and reigning in our life, um, he would be reflected in our life. Because what we say, how we live, is a reflection of who or what is living in our heart. And so therefore, if Christ is living in our hearts and reigning in our hearts, we should be reflecting him. Now, in this, we have considered, first of all, the reflection of our words, but then we moved on into reflecting Christ in our finances, and this is the sixth and hopefully final message on reflecting Christ in our, our finances, and we've already looked at, um, in the first part, the, the principles, uh, biblical principles that apply um, to finances as an overarching thing, and that was the principle of lordship, deciding who is, who's the lord of your, of your, of your wallet, who's the lord of your of the financial resources that you have. And then secondly, that of ownership, and that is that Christ owns everything. Um, we may think we own it, but reality is that, that God owns it all. And uh, then finally, the, the principle of discipleship, and that is whose teachings are you following when it comes to how you handle the resources, financial resources that he's given you. We then moved into the principle of stewardship, where we're spend, spending our time looking, first of all, at the administration of the financial resources, which we considered that we are, as stewards, to be found faithful. And again, that word is the Greek word pistos, which means to be worthy of trust. We're trustworthy. And then we looked at the acquisition of the financial resources, and that means getting it. We all like that part of it. But we considered the, um, the, the different principles, the honesty and integrity, and those things that were um, a part of the biblical principles of how we acquire money. Then we transitioned into the appropriation of the money, and that is how we spend it. And we saw that, again, just as Jesus said, that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. He really is to love the Lord our God with all of our wallet as well. I mean, he's the, he's the Lord. He's the owner of it. Um, but when we then spend it, God expects to, to get the first part. That's the first fruits. And, and that first part should at least be the first tenth. It should be a tithe. God said that he owns that through the, the prophet Malachi. Um, and that to not give him the tithe is to steal from God. Um, I believe that Jesus continued that into the New Testament when he told the Pharisees that they ought to continue to do the tithe, even though that they, they had the weightier matters of righteousness and faith as well, but they should continue to do tithing as well. And so God's standards have never changed, and so tithing is, is the very foundation of giving. And then there's offerings on top of that that, that are, are given beyond that. Then we saw that number two in the appropriations um, is the government. The fact is that um, we saw that taxation is biblical, um, that both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament we're told to give taxes to whom taxes are, are due. In fact, Joseph was the one who instituted taxation in, in Egypt. It was a 20% tax. And, uh, and so um, Romans 13 says that there's no authority except from God, and authorities that exist are appointed by God, and therefore whoever resists whoever resist the authority resists God, and so therefore give tax, taxes to whom taxes are due. 
And so, you know, if you um, try to shirk out on taxation, you're trying to shirk out on what God has appointed as well. Um, we have to take care of the, the, the physical side. But the other side is that government is number two, God is number one. And so, therefore, as you're tithing and as you're giving, you should be giving off of your gross, not off of your net. If you, only, if you tithe, first of all, if you don't tithe, again, I think you're not biblical. Um, but that's between you and God. You've got to decide that. But I think it's very clear in God's word, and he hasn't changed the standards. Um, but if you are tithing, and you're only tithing off of the, the net and not off the gross, I think that you've, what you've communicated, without seeking to communicate it, you're communicating that the government gets number one uh, shot of your resources and not God. And God, God should get the first part, not the leftovers. Number three was your family, taking care of the needs of, of your family group. And again, we saw in 1 Timothy 5, if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially those of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Okay, And so the fact is that we are to be providing for the basic needs of our, of our family. And so Jesus talked about those needs in Matthew 6. We may look at those a little bit today, not so much, but still he said, he talked about clothing, he talked about food, he talked about a place to live, and he talked about the basic, the basic things that we need, okay? And um, beyond that, they're, they're not needs. You know, cable TV is not a need. Cell phones are not needs. I got two cell phones on me today. I got my own and I got the churches. You know, I am fully equipped here to be bugged. And, um, but they're not necessities, are they? I mean, they're not. But we take all these things today as necessities. These are needs. Well, they're not needs. Um, they're, they're wants. Uh, number four, we looked at last week, um, spending last week looking at debt. And we saw different principles in the debt, and that is, first of all, going into debt, and secondly, paying off the debt. And we saw, again, an overarching principle, one of the overarching principles here, and that is that the, the borrower is servant to the lender. Okay, And so, clearly in God's word, God would encourage us not to be in debt. And if we are in debt, to seek to do whatever we can to be out of debt. Now, there are certain debts that are, are just going to be basic to, to living in, in our culture. You turn on the light switch, you become in, indebted to the power company. That's just part of it. But the, and you could, if you wanted to, pay them ahead of time, but it doesn't matter whether you're paying them ahead of time or paying them. But the overarching principle then is, is you're, not, you're looking to build a tower, and you're not going to go into a debt that you cannot what? Pay back. Okay. So I'm going to seek to be not in debt where I'm paying interest to anybody, you know, for example, like even with the mortgage, I want to get that paid off. Because eventually, if I pay that off, I'm not paying anybody for my house, except for the government for the taxations that's on it. But otherwise, I'm living rent-free in that facility. Does that make sense? I'm not lining some banker's pockets with the interest that he's charging me or she's charging me for, for the loan that they gave me. So um, you should seek to be, be seeking to be debt-free. Why? Well, because that takes us to number five, and that is... That God, again, going all the way back to the, the, the origins of this stuff, I don't own any of this stuff. Everything that I have that God has given me financially, as well as um, other things we're going to be looking at with talents and stuff like that, God has given to me as a steward for me to be able to use it for his glory and his kingdom's purpose. If I think that he's given it to me for me, then, then I'm, I'm kind of messed up on that. Okay, And so, in the end, after I've given God his section of it, quote-unquote, what belongs to him, after I've paid the government their taxes and stuff like that, I'm taking care of the needs of my family, and I've paid off my debt, everything else I have is surplus, okay? And so the question always is, for us, what do I do with my surplus? Now, in America, the reality is we always live to what? 
Well, yes, actually, most, most beyond, but to the standard of our income, okay? And yes, actually, most Americans live to the standard beyond their income. And, um, but the reality is that um, if I work a minimum wage job at McDonald's, I'm a, I'm a teenager or whatever, you know, I'm only spending what I get. Does that make sense? But it's amazing how that if I could, let's say as an adult, okay, if I could be content at living in that realm, all of a sudden I get a pay raise. And let's say the pay raise is $5 an hour. Now, that would really be nice if you get a $5 an hour pay raise, right? Normally, McDonald's is usually, what, $0.05 cents an hour, $0.10 cents an hour. But let's say I, I, I went on to management and I got a $5 an hour raise, okay? Now, all of a sudden, I got an extra $800 a month. What do most Americans, and sadly, most Christian Americans, think? I could go buy something. Now, I got $800 more a month that I can spend on me, Whereas before I was content at where I was, now all of a sudden I have $800 more a month that I can spend on luxury, that I can spend on mammon. Remember, the Greek word mammon is the things that money buys. Best brought into the United States as, or in our colloquialism, as materialism. And so... I tend to, and I'm going to put me in there because I know I'm just, there's no temptations overtaken us, but such is common to man. And so whether you're even in the United States or whether you're in, in, in India or whether you're in Timbuktu, it doesn't really matter. The fact is that all humanity struggles well with this common thing. That's why Jesus used God and mammon as the, the two things that he places the, the, uh, the struggle between. You have to decide who you're going to serve. Are you going to serve God or are you going to serve the things that money buys, materialism? Well, when we get to our surplus, it really is the tail of the tape. Because when we get to that surplus and we decide who's going to get the extra, we're really making the decision whether God gets the minimum standard or whether God is using me as a steward for his kingdom's purpose. Remember, Jesus said, to whom little um, is given, little will be required, but to whom much is given, much will be required. He also said, and if you're faithful in the little things, you will be what? You'll be faithful in the, the large things, okay? So, as we consider then this, this concept of surplus, I want to look at 1 Timothy 6. That was our, our Bible reading this morning. And I want to pull out two principles that I see in this, and then, of course, sub-principles as well. You know that I'm not going to go with just two. We're going to continue looking down deeper. And, um, but as, as Steve read this this morning, beginning in, in verse 6, we begin reading, that now godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. How many of you heard that before? I mean, you, didn't, you may not have known it was from the Bible, right? But the fact is we always make the joke about, you know, you never see the U-Haul behind the hearse. Where do you think that came from? It came from this verse. You brought nothing into the world, you're not going to take anything out of the world. Job said it differently. Job said Naked I came into the world, and naked I will, I will leave. You know, the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the, the Lord. Okay? The fact is that everything I own, I'm going to leave right here. There's really only one thing, if you would, concept-wise, that I can take with me eternally. What is that? Salvation. My salvation, but the, the souls of men. That's exactly right. If I am investing in the souls of men, those are things that I will see eternally. If I'm investing in the things of this world, I'm not going to see those. And so, we see that, he, first of all, he talks about having a, 
a godly focus, okay? And that is that I'm not looking to this world, I'm looking to the things out of the world. Verse 8, having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation in a snare, into which, into, and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. When my eyes are focused on the things of God, then I will become content, satisfied with what I have. But when my eyes are focused on the things of this world, then what's going to happen? I'm going to walk into snares that are set for me, is what has happened. Those who desire to be rich will become ensnared. There are traps that are set out there, whether of the world, whether of Satan, and there's, they're set for a purpose. And that purpose is to do what? Snag somebody. Does anybody remember First First uh, Corinthians chapter six when it says, "All things are lawful unto me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful unto me, but not all things. Or, but I will not be brought under the power or mastery of anything. All things are lawful unto me, but not all things are beneficial. All things are lawful unto me, but I will not be brought under the mastery." Well, that kind of goes along with that concept we talked about with debt, that the borrower is servant to the, the lender. Okay, And so the same thing, though, if my eyes are focused on riches, and I want more and more just for the sake of having more and more and more, all of a sudden I become enslaved to having more and more and more and more. But if my eyes are focused on the eternal realm, and I'm content with the things that I have, and yet God continues to open up more and more to me to have more, then... What am I going to see the purpose of the surplus for? Again, for the eternal heavenly realm. That is there for God to use. And again, I started off weeks ago, and I shared an illustration of who? Does anybody remember? A man from Texas. Laterno. Mr. Laterno. Um, R.G., I call him George Laterno. And, 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 and Donald came up and says, I've never heard him referred to as George before. And... Uh, it must have been one of those Southerners that went by his middle name. Anyways, but George Letourneau, who, before he became a very wealthy man, had established a budget for his life and laid it out before God and said, God, until the time that you help me meet this budget, I'm going to tithe to you. But at this point that this budget is met, I know that everything beyond this budget is yours, that you've given to me as a surplus to be used for your kingdom's glory. And by the time that he died, he was giving well over 90% of his income to the Lord. And, um, and, he, and he held to that, to that, that standard. And the challenge, remember, I went into it, I challenged you as we went into this stuff, are you there? And, you know, do you have a budget that you're even looking at, you're saying this is the needs that we have, so that when God blessed you, you'd be ready to give extra for the kingdom. And I'm not saying this as a pastor of this church because I, I want us the, the offering to be so huge. Okay? And yet the other side is, you know, that wouldn't be a bad thing either that we could afford a bigger facility. You know, I think all of us would, would be, be like to have that. Okay. And so, and we looked at the Old Testament where, where they were calling about giving for the tabernacle and they gave so much and it was all free will offerings that they gave so much that Moses actually had to go back and tell them what? Stop giving. Stop giving. So this surplus section is where we're at. And so first of all, there's this, this principle of having a, a godly focus. Well, What's the, the godly focus here that we're told about? First of all, it's pursuing true riches. Okay? 
And so down in verse, before we get to this verse in Proverbs here, drop down to verse 17. And it says, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. And so you want to have this focus, and you want to be focusing on the things which are, are true, the true riches that are there. In Proverbs 11, we read, There is one who scatters, yet increases more, and there is one who withholds more than is right, but it leads to poverty. The generous soul will be made rich, and he who waters will also be watered himself. God's got a general principle that he lays out there, and that is that he will take care of those who, what? Are, are generous. That see everything as, as his. And they're willing to, to not hoard it, but to give it. And if they're willing to give it, that God says, I will bless you accordingly. Okay? In Luke chapter 3, turn with me there. You can keep your finger in 1 Timothy because we'll come back there. But in Luke chapter 3, verses 7 to 11... Luke's part of the um, Sermon on the, the Mount, um, he, he begins to declare, it says in verse 7, this is John the Baptist, when, when people were coming out to John, not the Sermon on the Mount, but when people were coming to the Jordan to be um, baptized by John, um, John says when he says, then in the multitudes that came to, to be baptized by him, he says, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I say unto you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So he's talking about you've got to bear these fruit that are, that are consistent with people who said they repent. Well, look what the people say. Verse 10. People ask him, What shall we do then? In other words, what are those works that are consistent with a change, changing the way we think. Verse 11, John answered and said to them, He who has two tunics, let him give it to, one, to him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. What's he say? What's the very first thing he says is going to be an indicator of someone who has changed the way they think? They're sharing. They're sharing. No longer are they have a worldview. No longer are they thinking about the, the perspective of the world and they're seeking to hoard it for themselves and to get, you know, he who dies with the most toys wins, you know. They don't think that way anymore. Rather, they've changed the way they think and they see that everything they have is an instrument that God has given to them in order for them to serve God with. And so he says, so if you have two tunics, you have one too many. You don't need the second one. It's in, it's in surplus. If you know somebody who needs a tunic, what should you do? Give them the tunic. If you have plenty of food, and you know somebody who has need for food, then instead of seeing this as, wow, we've got plenty of food in the, in the, in the, in the, in the pantry, and I feel really good, and I feel really secure, you're trusting in your pantry, not in God, right? God says, if you know somebody who has a need of that food that's in that pantry, what should you do? Give them the food that's in the pantry. Because ultimately, what are you doing? You're trusting in God, then, to provide for your pantry. It's that same concept of the first fruits. Do you remember when we talked about the first fruits? The first fruits was that very first part of the harvest. You didn't know whether there was going to be a hailstorm next week and it's going to destroy everything else. But you were willing to take the first part of the harvest and go and give it to God for His glory, for His use, not knowing whether you would ever get the remainder of the harvest as well. You were trusting 
in God to provide for you and your family. The same concept that John the Baptist is talking to these people about. He says, you only need one tunic at a time. Somebody else needs a tunic, give them a tunic. When yours wears out, if it ever wears out, because what do we know about the clothing and the shoes of the people in the wilderness? Forty years and it never wore out. Americans would hate that. I mean, nothing personal, ladies. But I, I really don't think about what I'm wearing from Sunday to Sunday and whether I wore this last week and whether someone's going to remember I wore it two weeks ago. But I know you women really do. I mean, it's like, oh, I just, oh, I just wore them last month. What are they going to think of me? Anyways, and, you know, I know everybody doesn't think of it. Anyways, and so, but it's more of a woman thing than a guy thing. And, but as Americans, we tend to do that. You know, I remember the house we moved into when I was in seminary in Schwanksville, Pennsylvania, okay? And we lived right on the route, Route 23. This house was an old bed and breakfast inn from the early 1900s. And so it was the days of not cars, but horse buggy. And so it was right on the road. Well, they had converted into a duplex, and so we were on one side of this duplex, okay? And hardwood floors, old banisters, really I mean, awesome old look to it. But my bedroom... My bedroom upstairs had a closet that was about as big as that pulpit. Literally. I mean, it might have been narrow, I mean, even not as deep as, the, as this pulpit, you know? I don't know what kind of hangers they had on this thing, cause it, but it literally was that big. People back then didn't have the wardrobe. They weren't worrying about, I mean, some of the houses, like, we paint now and we work on and with these walk-in closets that are... Bigger than my bathroom, you know? And um, it's just amazing to me. And so, you know, what did we do? Well, we went out and bought one of those clothes rack things and stick it up in the corner of the bedroom and, and stuck a curtain around it so that we had a, a bigger closet. And uh, But it was an eye-opener for us. We literally could probably put four to six hangers in that thing. That was it. That was their closet. That's what they were content with. Now that I think about it, they probably maybe had the, the, the rod going the other way. Maybe they could put less in it. Um, anyways, but that's what they had. But for us, two tunics and give away one? What are you talking about? I need to have what? I, I, in a backup of my backup. I mean, it wouldn't be bad if I had a half a dozen of them. You never know when you, you know, I mean, you got to have one that's black, one that's brown, one that's blue, one that's, you know, I mean, it, all, it has to match. I mean, and so therefore, I got to have multiple pairs of shoes because I have black shoes that match my black belt and I got to have brown shoes that match my brown belt. And I've got to wear the black belt or the brown belt based upon what I'm wearing. And so I'm really confusing my, my own designer here having a, a tan coat on with black pants because now do you wear brown or do you wear black with it? And then once I have that, I got to have the right shoes. And this is all kind of weird stuff. But you know what? John the Baptist wasn't worried about that, was he? He didn't even talk about sandals. Because everybody knew they only had what? One pair of sandals. Well, surplus. So you take that analogy and then extrapolate it, okay? Put the logarithmic curve on it if you understand. I love math, right? Okay? Because you understand logarithmic curve starts like this, right? And then as it, it goes out, it starts going like this. Well, when you come like this and you say, okay, this is back here with John the Baptist, where do you think we are? We're up here where it's, it's astronomical, okay? So, so when I, I don't want to, to, to really um, seem like I'm overextending this illustration too much. I'll just trust the Holy Spirit to extrapolate that one for you. You can just take that um, John's words and bring them by application into us as the United States. 
Well, first of all, First Timothy 6, then back in there, we're told to pursue true riches. Secondly, back there in verse 11 that we read, we were supposed to trust in, in God, trust in God. In Proverbs 14, 21, we read, He who despises his neighbor sins, but he who has mercy on the poor, happy is he. You say, now what does that have to do with trusting in God? Again, mercy. Mercy is a concept of who? God. God is the one who is, is the author of mercy. And if we understand the mercy of God, and, and, we, and we understand it being applied to us, then we will be content to do what? Share it with others. But too many of us, Bob included, are very quick to do what when I'm looking at the needs of my neighbors, the needs of the poor? Ask what question? Why, why, why are you there? Why are you there? And I want to instantly become the what? The judge of whether I should help them. Well, the concept of mercy is when I don't receive what I do deserve. And so there are some people in this world who do deserve what? No help. But we're told that the one who despises the neighbor sins. But he who has mercy on the poor, happy is he. Blessed is he. That if we're continually the, the Scrooge types, if you would, who are looking out there at the, the lower classes, and we're saying, you could pull yourself up by the bootstraps. I did it. You could do it too. Whether you did it or not, doesn't really matter. You say, but we're in America, and you could do that. And we begin to despise those who are poor, rather than being merciful on them. God has given us surplus in order for us to help the poor. That's right. How do you blend the two concepts? Good. Well, that's, that's a great question. How do I know the balance between if a man's not willing to work, he shouldn't eat, and having mercy on the poor? How do I know when it's a wise decision, not a, a, not a wise decision? We'll look at some other verses that, that kind of go along with this as well. But in a nutshell, all I can tell you is that that's a part of this job I hate because I'm the one who answers the church phone and gets you know the people putting me on hold and listen, watching their cable television and everything else while they're asking me to help pay for their their rent, you know, because they're they're paying for all the, the pleasures in life, but they don't they can't pay for their own rent, and and I hate that because I'd, I'd rather just not answer the phone and and not have to deal with it. So what do you do? Well, I pray about it. I pray because I think that there are people clearly who have to deal with the what the consequences of their sin of their actions. And there are other people who have a legitimate need. There are, there are circumstances in life that bring us to that, that someone's willing to work, but they can't find work enough to pay for the needs. Okay? I mean, and there are other people who, I mean, they can find a job like, like that. It's just amazing. I mean, I know a guy who, you know, people say there's no jobs out there, but this guy can go through jobs like nothing. I mean, I wish he'd stay at one, but he, I mean, he gets the job and he works it for a while, and then he gets the bird. Devin, you know him, right? And he, and he gets his burr, and he just he leaves it, and he goes on to the next job, and he can be there six, seven, eight months, and he gets and he's gonna leave, but he finds another job. I mean, it's amazing right now, and he's got a good job right now, okay, and um, and they're there, they're out there, but maybe God has a way of just opening doors up for him that he doesn't open up for somebody else, and so I've got to be careful that I don't become the judge of the individual. Does that make sense? Who is trying 
but it's trying unsuccessfully. It could be somebody who, in the past, had a jail record. Yes, Devin? And once you got a felony, how many people want to hire a felon? Not very many. And so now all of a sudden, now, again, it's a consequence of the past. It is a consequence, okay? But of all people, who should have mercy on the sinner who is being redeemed? Us as believers, okay? And that's the, that's the thing, Cindy. I would say, so I can't give you a hard fast, this person, that person, this is the, and we as people want a what? We want that, that, that list to go down. Chink, 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 chink. Sorry, you don't meet the list. Good. That's exactly right. That's, you know, because it may be the person who's touched by your mercy. And yet there have been others that, I mean, I, I helped numerous times, not just through the church, and this is the previous church I was at, I first met I'm one guy, I'm thinking about it specifically, that I just felt burdened, like, why am I taking these things to the church? I mean, I know because he's calling the church. But the other side is, I want to be involved individually. You know, again, we talk about the tithing and that kind of stuff. I don't want to be legalistic and always sending needs to the church and that kind of stuff. And so I, I helped, you know. But when I realized the guy was abusing, I said to him, look, I, I can't help you anymore unless you're willing to have financial counseling. Another thing I found out is the guy wasn't married to the, the woman that he was with for years, and they had multiple kids with it. They were bilking the government because, again, it was not a political message here, but if they, when they got married, they would lose a lot of government, government assistance, okay, because the government would assist her, okay, and, and she's an unmarried woman having all these children, you know, but the minute they got married, they lost government assistance. I, that was another thing. I, I'm not going to help you unless you get married. Well, they got, they got married. And so, um, so he was willing to do things, but yet he still had some struggles and stuff like that. And so I tried to use wisdom, applying biblical principles to that situation, just praying about it. Lord, what's the next step? And that kind of stuff. And so um, I, I wish I could tell you, but we just have to have a heart to give. And ultimately, I know that when I give to somebody that they're not taking and abusing my money, they're taking and abusing God's money. And, and that's the, the really the, the overriding factor that you've got to have, and that is it's not my money. If it's my money, I'm going to get really mad about them stealing my money. But I just warn them, this is not my money, it's, it's God's money. And you're going to give an account to God for what you do with the resources that he's flowing through me to you. Well, in Proverbs 22.9, it says, He who has a generous eye will be blessed, for he gives of his bread to the poor. See, again, so now we're talking about not just mercy, but we're talking about having that, what? Generous. What's my demeanor? What's my attitude? In my focus, in my, again, focus on the eternal, am I focusing on the world? Am I trusting in my riches or am I trusting in God? If I'm trusting in God, I'm going to be very generous at giving it away because I know that God will do what? Provide for me. I'm not worrying about my, my needs. You know, right now, again, I shared last week about the, or maybe it was two weeks ago, whatever, with the family and looking toward retirement and that kind of stuff, and I don't have that. And so there's part of me that's already looking at that side. Now, I have a life insurance policy to protect Marsha, okay, if I should die, but I, I'm, I'm looking at that, what do I, you know, what's the balance for, for me, God, here? You know, I want to be able to use a surplus for your kingdom, and I want to be able to, 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 to use it for that and not turn around and, and, and building the bigger silo for myself and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And yet I know there's a part where I have to go to the ant thou sluggard and consider her ways and taking it from the harvest and laying it aside for the winter. Okay, there's a part where you've got to have this wisdom and there's a balance there. And so for Bob, I want to have the generous eye. Does that make sense? 
and, and, and God maybe give me a gift of giving or whatever, but I don't have a problem necessarily giving, you know, and just in doing that. that. That doesn't bother me so much. Um, but i got to worry about it on the other side, and that is I'm not destroying my family on the, on the other side. Okay? He who gives to the poor will not lack, but he who hides his eyes will have many curses. Okay? So all three of these verses all having to do the same concept, having this um, desire to meet the needs of the poor. Again, um, where I was going a moment ago was with the government and welfare. Um, you know, years ago, like hundreds of years ago, it was the church who felt compelled to do what? To take care of family, but take care of the poor. We saw it, and I'm saying we because it was the church, and we're going to look at this in just a moment. We saw it as a means of evangelism, not just of ministering to the body, which was important, but we also saw it as a means of evangelism because many poor then, like you said, are reached by the mercy and the generosity of the saints reaching out to their needs. But the church doesn't do that anymore. In fact, if you call a lot of churches, they're going to give you the numbers for who? The social agencies. That's exactly right. And we turn people over to our ultimate parents, Uncle Sam and whoever Aunt Lucy is. Okay, And, and, and so we, we turn them over to the government to take care of the people. Whereas God has placed us here as ambassadors for his kingdom. But we're so worried about getting more mammon for ourselves and not using the surplus that he's given us for his kingdom's glory. Turn with me to James chapter 2. A very um, eye-opening passage that probably you have all seen before. James 2, beginning verse 14, it says, What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? Now, understand we're getting into this faith without works is dead stuff, right? But do you know the illustration that's applied to this? We'll continue on, verse 15. If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and be filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone may say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. Listen, as I shared last week about that young man who was ministering to these um, uh, friends, his eyes are opened up now to the demonic influence, and he's ministering to them, and he sees that every time he mentions the name of God or Jesus, I mean, it just their, their demeanor changes, you know? And, well, when Jesus got out of the boat over in the gatherings, do you remember when he went across the, the lake and he goes gets out of the boat, and the, and the demoniac comes running down to him, the, what does the demoniac do? He falls to his feet, right? And he says, What do we do with thee, Jesus, thou son of God? Have you come to cast us into the pit before our time? Well, the demons know what? They knew exactly who he was. But they weren't falling down to worship him. They were um, stuck in their sin as demons. They had the one decision follow Lucifer, follow God. They chose to follow Lucifer, and for all of eternity, they're stuck, okay? 
Well, the fact is that demons believe in God. They know there's a God. And yet they what? They tremble. There's a difference between intellectual belief, believing in your mind. Again, I've shared numerous times. For 23 years, I went to church. I believed in God. I believed in Jesus. I knew that Jesus died. I knew that he was buried. I knew that he was in the tomb for three days and that he raised from the dead. I mean, I, I was confirmed in the church. I took my Holy Communion. I, I, I went to church on, on, on Good Friday all the time. I went to church every Sunday. I was active in a youth group. I, I, I worked with the, um, the ushering and that kind of stuff. But I didn't know him. There was a difference between intellectual understanding and heartfelt belief. And Romans 10 says, if you believe in your heart and then confess with your mouth. That has nothing to do with a a sinner's prayer. That has everything to do with the fact that what James is talking about, if you believe it, if you really have faith, what's it going to do? It's going to come out in everything you say. It's going to come out in everything you do. If you believe in your heart, you're going to confess it with your mouth. It's just going to come out. You can't help otherwise. And so James says, Faith without works is dead. He says, if you say you have faith, but then you're hoarding. You're hoarding. Now, this is all in the context of these rich people who are coming into the church and you're giving the, the better seating to. You know, the, the poor man came in and you say, here, sit under my footstool. But the rich guy came in and we'll bring it into our context. He's got the tie on. He's got the, the diamond ring. He's got the little, you know, little, what do you call the, the handkerchief that comes in the top pocket there, you know. And he comes in and everybody says, oh, this must be a rich guy, you know. He may be living under the, the Fifth Street Bridge. He just owns a Cadillac and one, one good outfit. But everybody thinks he is. And you want to give him the best spot and everybody wants to talk to him. I remember years ago in this church, Family Bible Church, a young man, young man, he was not really young, he's not much younger than me, anyways, um, who had been a derelict, okay, in his life, came in, and, and I remember nobody, now this is, if you were there, I'm not saying who was here and who wasn't here, okay, everybody was afraid to go talk to this guy, somebody came, I was in the back when the guy came in, and I happened to know the guy, so it didn't really matter to me, but somebody came in to me and told me, hey, uh, Bob, there's, there's, there's somebody out there, <laughs> I looked out, and I went on and I said hi to the guy. And I've been ministering to him and stuff like that. So, but wow, come on, we can't be that way. We can't be ones who who are respecters of persons. This is a poor person. This is a rich person. I don't mind talking to the rich person, but I don't want to talk to the poor person. We can't do that. That's not biblical. That's not Christ-like. But we tend to do that. And so James is saying, looky, if you've got somebody in the body who has a need, instead of being the judge of the person and saying, well, you got yourself there, and you have something you can minister to the person with, and if you're not ministering to them, what good's your faith? Because you're doing exactly what Jesus said with Matthew chapter 6. You're choosing whether you believe in God, whether you're serving God, or whether you're serving mammon. And so I know this is rough. Bob struggles with this too. I live in this world. And I mean, and I know, you know, liking to have my toys and, and liking to eat, you know, steak rather than rice or whatever the, 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 real, the, the issues are there, okay? But, but it's a test of whether I am pursuing true riches and trusting in God. It's a test of my focus. And, and we're told to have a godly focus. Well, secondly, we're told to have a godly attitude. Go back to to um, 1 Timothy 6, beginning there in um, verse 11, it says, But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Isn't it interesting when we talk about fighting the good fight of faith? What's it in the middle of? 
It's in the middle of riches. It's, it's in the middle of, of, of dealing with contentment. This is going to be the good fight of faith. This is the thing that we're going to be fighting the entire time, what our focus is going to be. And then he goes on then to talk about then the attitude that I'm going to have in this. And he goes on and says, urging them and stuff. And um, drop down to um, verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, prideful, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come. Well, a godly attitude. What do we see first of all? First of all, they are postured to give. Okay? And so when I talk about attitude, I'm not talking about necessarily your demeanor. I'm talking about your stance. And so this posture, you're postured to give. Well, Proverbs 3 says, Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is your power of your hand to do so. Do not say to your neighbor, Go and come back, and tomorrow I will give it when you have it with you. And I missed an E there. I'm not quite sure how that E got there. But anyways, when you have it with you. Okay? And so if I have it and you need it, if already I am postured to give, if it's already my attitude, I've got this attitude of generosity that we talked about before, right? What's going to happen if I hear about a need in the body? It's just going to flow, isn't it? But if my posture is one of holding people back, and I start hearing about a need, what am I going to do? I'm going to close my ears. It means nothing to me. It's your problem, not mine. I've taken care of mine own, thank you very much. And I've made sure that we don't have any needs. I'm an American. I pulled myself up by my own bootstraps. You know, it's amazing. We all know the cliches, and we understand them, and we struggle with those things. And so I want to encourage you, changing the way that you think, to repent, to, to not think like the world thinks, but to think like God would have us think. First John 3, we've been talking about this in our, our memorization. We've memorized this a few weeks ago, or I'm sorry, a few months ago. But in 1 John 3, we read, beginning verse 16, By this we know love, because he, that is God, laid down his life for us, and we all also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. Well, one of the ways that I know that I'm saved, or could know that I was saved, is what? Am I giving of the surplus? Is the money that God has given me a stewardship from him to distribute amongst those who have needs, whether of the body or even maybe even outside of the body. In the book of Acts, we read about those who are investing in eternity. Okay, And First um, Timothy 6 says, again, about looking, again, as we talked about earlier, with that focus, investing in the future. Turn, turn to Acts 2 with me. We're going to go to Acts 4 as well in just a moment. But in Acts chapter 2, we read about the early church and what it was that the early church had done and how they had lived. And I'm going to start at verse 40 for the context here. For um, This is Pentecost, and Peter's just getting done um, 
preaching about Christ. And in verse 40, Acts 2.40 says, And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, were immersed. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now, all who believed were together and had all things in common. That concept of having all things in common, the word there is the, the word that we use for communion. It's the word koinonia. And it's the, the concept of, I would bring into the English as the word camaraderie. Okay, It's the one for all and all for one. And it's that we have, um, it's not mine, it's ours. Um, what's the difference between communism and communalism? Does anybody know? What's the difference between communism and communalism? <laughs> Let's go the other way, though. I did it. One's forced and one's voluntary. Communism is forced sharing. Communalism is voluntary sharing. The early church lived communally. Communally. Now, that doesn't mean that they had a, a, a compound and they all sold everything they had and they went and lived in this compound like a cult. What it meant was they understood that God owned everything and that God gave them everything as a stewardship. And so they had all things in common to make sure that everybody in the body had their needs met. They had their needs met. And so, continue on. Um, verse 44 says, Now all believed were, had, were together and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods, and divided them among all as many as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with what? Who did they have favor with? All the people, not the brethren. It's not talking about the church, but the believers had favor amongst the people. They had favor amongst all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. The world looked at the church, and they said what? I want what they got. Something has happened to them. You know where the word gospel comes from? Does anybody know the, the, the origins of the word gospel? Where did it come from, Devin? Oh, actually, it's Bretons, not necessarily Ireland, but in Great Britain. Okay, and it was God's spell because the Bretons, the tribes that were there in Britain um, before Britain became Britain. Okay, the tribes that were there when the gospel, when get rid of the word gospel for a second, when the good news of Jesus Christ, Ungaleon, went got into to Britain. Okay, and and they and they took it up there, and people started to get saved. Okay. They started to, to repent of their sins and turn to Jesus Christ. Their lives were changed. And the Bretons, they couldn't understand it. And so they said they were under a God spell. And so God spell, gospel, gospel, gospel. And that's where the word gospel comes from. It really doesn't necessarily mean good news. It was a God spell. In other words, they couldn't explain the change that came on these people. They no longer lived like the rest of the Bretons lived. Now they live like different people. And it was that apparent. What's wrong with American Christianity? We blend right in. 
it's better to hunt with. I can I can find the unbelievers better when I'm when I'm blending in. You know, they come right on past my tree and they don't even know I'm there. And that's not how it's supposed to be. Rather, we're told that we're supposed to be lights in the crooked and perverse nation among whom we hold forth the word of life shining brightly. And as darker the world gets, my light should be what? Brighter and brighter. I shouldn't be hiding. It shouldn't be that I'm, I'm cloaking myself better and better. You know, man, I, mean, I know the light's here. That means I've got to put on a darker and darker garment so they don't see my light. No, they ought to be seeing it. They ought to see that there's something different. And that's exactly what happened at Pentecost in those early days of the church. The, 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 the believers transformed and they saw that nothing in this world was, was worthy of them and that everything was from God's perspective and they wanted to give it for the needs of the people. And the people said, wow, we want what they got. Turn the page probably to chapter 4. Chapter 4, 32 to 37. Acts 4, beginning verse 32. It says, Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart in one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things that he possessed was his own. But they had all things in common. They shared all things as there was need. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought them to the, brought the proceeds of the things that were sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each one as anyone had need. And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Well, again, the early church understood this whole concept we've been going through this all these weeks and get into the surplus because what they're talking about is these people had what? Surplus. And they understood the concept of surplus and that the surplus was there for God to use for his kingdom's glory. And do you note both in Acts 2 and Acts 4 what the ultimate result of people being transformed in the way they think about their money? Not only were the needs of the people met, Okay, there was nobody in the church who was hungering. But even more so, what was the second thing that happened? People were being saved. The, the apostles had power. The church was filled with power. The Christian church of the United States is anemic. We have no power. And could it be, honestly, because we do have idols? that we've set up besides God. And it is the very idol that Jesus has warned us about. And that is mammon. And that we're more worried about how many toys we have, how much of the things of the world we have, and how big the U-Haul might be able to be that's going to go behind the hearse. Jesus said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, but lay up for yourselves treasures in Heaven. Where are you laying up treasures? Where am I laying up treasures? I mean, I, I know when I say you, I'm not just picking on you. I understand that these are all, you know, as you prepare messages, you're getting slammed the whole time, okay? So I'm, I understand I'm, I'm being slammed as I, as I prepare these messages. And I, and I honestly wanted this only to be two or three weeks too, so I could be done with this thing and I didn't have to continue to be challenging myself, okay? What's your view of surplus? Is it for you? 
I paid my debt to God. I got rid of the 10%. I'm good. The rest is mine. Or is it, wow, now we're getting into the free will offering side of things here. God is, God, God's got the, what he owe, what I owe him, what is his, and now he's given me all the rest of this so I can be very generous in my giving. God loves the generous giver. Where are you laying up your treasures? We brought nothing into the world. It's certain we can what? Carry nothing out. And are you ready and willing to give? Are you postured to give? Some of us need to get out of more debt so we can be postured to give. You can't give because you're giving to the, to the lender. You are a servant. You are a slave to the lender, whether you want to admit it or not, because you cannot stop making the payments. And if you do, they're going to come and take everything you own. And so you're willfully, you're willingly putting yourself in under more loans to people who become your masters. And you need to be out of that debt so that you're free and ready to go and do whatever the Lord wants you to do. You can be postured to give. That you have the resources there. You're ready and you're willing to share. And finally, is there a need to change the way you think? Listen. Sometimes we say, oh, well, that's, that's for unbelievers. It's not for unbelievers. Again, it's for believers. We need to be transformed in the renewing of our mind. That we need to offer our bodies as living sacrifices and not being conformed to the world, but being transformed. Do you want to look like Jesus and reflect him? Or do you want to look like the world and reflect the world? It really boils down to that as we talk about this personal, individual reflection. I'm not talking about from the church's perspective yet. I mean, we're going to get to us globally. But I'm talking about me individually. Those people that rub shoulders with me, what do I want them to see? What do I want them to be influenced by? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your goodness. In spite of us, Lord, you are generous. You have a generous eye to us. You have given us of your grace and of your mercy. You have afforded us salvation when we could not purchase it on our own. Lord, I pray that we would have that same eye of grace and mercy, the same eye of generosity to those that we come in contact with. Lord, I confess to you that I do judge. I do assess people's situations too rapidly. Lord, I pray that you would help me to be a distributor of mercy. And Lord, I pray for these others that are here, that as you challenge in their hearts, Lord, what parts of your fruit of the Spirit that they need to work on, Lord, that you would help us to be those who are reflectors of, of you, that many would come to know you for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen.